Welcome to Calvary Atheism Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. We hope this blesses you. Good morning. Who else is a little bit tired like me? Yeah. Well, if we haven't met before, uh, my name is Sarah. I get to be the associate pastor here at Calvary YA. Who's been to YA? It should be no one. No, I'm just kidding. Just our leaders. Just leaders. That was a trick. That was a trick. Um, no, we have a lot of our young adults that serve with you guys as small group leaders. Um, are my friends. I have the privilege of getting to lead in that ministry. I'm excited for you seniors to join us next year and hopefully see the rest of you in a few years. Um, but yeah, who who here went to the lock? Just slow raise of hands. It's early. Like who was here at the lock-in? Wow. Can we just like clap for those who came to church today? All right. And also just like to the leaders. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much. So you're welcome. Thank you, JD. Um, I have to know, since we are like, we're in the heart of December now, like we are weeks away from Christmas. Like, do we have Christmas people? Like who just like loves Christmas? Loves Christmas. Okay, for these people, raise your hand if you are also the person that cannot wait for December 1st and you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Yes. Yes. Here we are, front row. Now raise your hand if you're like, that is sacrilegious. I, I, I can only turn it on after Thanksgiving, yes? Okay, okay, well now we know those that have the discipline of waiting, which is what we'll be talking about today. No, I'm just kidding. I used to be like the biggest Grinch in the world where I was like, ah, we can only listen to it December 1st through the December 25th, and then I got married. And in marriage, you learn to sacrifice for the people you love, and my husband loves Christmas. So we had our Christmas decorations up the second week of November, guys. The second week of November. And I was asking him, I was like genuinely curious at this point. I'm like, why is it that you can't wait for December? And the way he said it was so good. He was like, Christmas is a good thing. Why would you want to wait to start celebrating it? Like, think about this, guys. Like, not to burst everyone's bubble, but when it comes to waiting in life, most of the things we wait on, we cannot control right? Most of the things that we wait on that weigh on us, we can't control. But there are some things like Christmas music and Christmas decor that we can control. So people go on for that because they want the good thing now. They want the good thing now. But what I want to talk about today in this series, like next Christmas, is what would it mean if by next Christmas we can look back on our lives and see the things that we can't control, we actually waited well for, or at least better maybe than this past year. Because one of the experience, again, that is promised, guaranteed 100% in our lives is that we will wait on something. And we have a choice of what to do in that waiting. Now, I understand some of you may be waiting on a few of these things. Um, Who here is waiting for finals to be over? For finals, yeah, okay, that was like the most raised of hands we got so far, yes. I remember that feeling. I went to Oaks Christian. I was just like, I couldn't think until December 22nd. I was waiting for finals to be over. But maybe you're a senior and you're waiting on college decisions. You're turning in apps. You're waiting for the spring. You're wondering like, God, where, like, where am I going to end up? What's that next step? I know it's early, but can I get a little personal with you guys? Like, maybe you're waiting for that guy to like finally notice you or for that girl to finally say yes to a first date. But let me go deeper. Like maybe you're waiting for the grief of a failed relationship to end. Maybe you had that and now you're just like, 
in the mix of what the heck, God? Is it always going to hurt this bad? Maybe you're waiting on your parents to finally get along or a loved one to be healed. And, and I say and I share these things because I want to acknowledge like waiting is hard. It's difficult. It can be a very difficult experience because we long for the good. We long to feel good. We long to be comfortable. We long to get the result that we've been praying for, that we've been waiting on God for. But here's the first truth about waiting that I want to share with you guys tonight or this morning. <laughs> so dark in here. <laughs> the first truth is waiting your whole life is going to be a tension to manage and not a problem we can solve. In other words, like waiting isn't going to go away. Again, it's a part of the human experience and we can't solve it, but we can learn what to do in that tension. And luckily, I have, I have the word on my iPad, but we have this precious word of God that captures again and again eyewitness accounts of men and women that have gone before us that show us God's heart for us in our waiting. Because God cares about our waiting. And the truth is by next Christmas, we will all have waited on something, probably multiple things in our lives. And my hope and prayer for us is that by next Christmas, we will have learned to have waited well in the tension of whatever is coming to mind for you right now. So before we begin, before we dive into the word, if it's okay with you guys, I just want to pray for us. I want to prepare our hearts to receive this message. So will you guys pray with me? Yeah, let's do it. Lord God, I just thank you that you are not far off, that you are near. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to be with us in the flesh, to walk this life, to experience tensions and waitings and rejections and difficulties, so that when we go to your word, there is just the deepest of empathy, that you know what it's like to sit in tension, Lord, that you yourself are actually very patient and are waiting. Thank you for your word tonight, God. Thank you so, this afternoon. Thank you so much for the way, God, that you bring comfort and hope and good news in our waiting. Lord, prepare our hearts to receive that. And Lord, just have mercy on me as I speak. Lord, I pray that what is meant to be shared would be shared and stick and everything else would fall away. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, which I guarantee you have one, we're going to open up to Luke chapter 1 and we'll be in verses 1 through 25. So you stack right there. Cool. Verse 1 begins like this. Luke begins, many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know with certainty of the things that you have been taught. What is Luke trying to say? Luke is trying to say that as he's writing, before he even gets into the count that he's about to write, which revolves entirely around the life and ministry of Jesus, that he has done his homework. He has gone back into the Old Testament, he has taken account of the prophecies, which basically are promises from God given through his people about a coming savior that have been fulfilled. 
promises made by God that have come to pass. Not only that, but it says he's investigated, searched out and put together a credible account of the life of Jesus using eyewitnesses, people who walked with Jesus and were around to witness the life and miracles of Jesus. This was a huge undertaking. Like if you've ever written a research paper and your teacher's been like, I need like three credible citations, you're like, oh, here we go. We're looking online, we're going to some libraries. But why is that important? Why is that important? Because testimony bolsters credibility. When people have seen with their eyes and heard with their ears information and it's passed on, it's consistent over time, then it becomes credible. But why is Luke so concerned with credibility? Two reasons, one, he's writing for the sake of the people, the Jewish people, who had waited centuries for a savior to come. Centuries, they had heard whispers, they had read the Old Testament or heard the Old Testament prophecies. And generation after generation, waiting, waiting, waiting until they become, once again, oppressed by another people group, in this case, in the Roman Empire. They're waiting for their champion, they're waiting for their savior, the person that would save them, give them freedom. They want their king to come. So Luke is saying, I'm gonna be so careful that I do not lead you astray. But the second reason is this. He's not only writing to the Jewish people, but now the gospel is for everyone. He's writing to a group of skeptics, of non-Jewish citizens of the Roman Empire, who had not given up hope because they were never waiting on a savior. They had already invested in their hope in all the wrong places, falling after other gods, after sources of power. They didn't know what their souls were actually waiting for. So when we get to this count that Luke is going to tell, he's trying to bring assurance to his audience that what he's about to share is true eyewitness testimony. Why is that important for us to consider? It's, con- it's important for us to consider because of this. Testimony brings faith in our waiting. Testimony brings faith in our waiting. Testimony is the act of testifying or sharing the facts of God's faithfulness in our lives. And what does that do? It encourages our hearts in the waiting. Because I don't know if you're like me, but it's natural to feel anxious in the waiting. It's natural to experience doubt. But when anxiety and doubt is not looked at in the light of the truth of who God is and who he's been and who he's always gonna be, what happens? We quickly start painting a very uncreative and unrealistic picture of our futures. So how do we engage with anxiety and doubt in our waiting? First, it's this, remind yourself of God's faithfulness in your story. Remind yourself of God's faithfulness in your story can I encourage you that like, as the things you're waiting on come to mind, maybe I like, touched on one earlier, there's something just rising to the surface right now. Like, you can also hold tension to reflect back on what the Lord has already done in your life, fulfilled in your life. I had this friend, Britt, and she's uh, like a middle-aged mom. She did something called a round table with us where we just kept having dinners together with different generations. And one time we were talking about waiting and she shared this. She said, when I get anxious, when I come up to the next thing that I'm waiting on, 
what I do is I look back on the things that the Lord has done in my life and I'll actually take like physical tokens to remind me of what he's done. So she built this shelf in her house where she had things like when her husband was waiting on a job for years, she put his new business card up there. When they weren't able to have a baby and they finally conceived, she put the little sonogram. And it just, again, she was just stalking the shelf of testimony of God's faithfulness. So if it's okay with you guys, I also brought some things today. I just wanna share with you just tokens of God's faithfulness in my life. I don't have a shelf, I'm just gonna put this on the table and then on the floor. Um, so here's, here's some things that come to mind when I'm starting to slip into that doubt, that anxiety that I call to mind. The first, I'm gonna get a little vulnerable. After the first time, like I really feel like somebody broke my heart, I, t I felt like I was never gonna heal. Like I, I will say, I think heartache is the worst kind of pain. And I pray you haven't experienced yet, but with life, we get disappointed, those things come. And in the season where I actually felt like the Lord was restoring my hope, restoring my heart, I found this picture online. It's a hand sketch of an anatomical heart. And if you're familiar with the Japanese practice of kintsugi, that just means that where there's cracks and there's gaps, they fill it with gold to increase the value of whatever has been broken. And this used to hang above my desk just as a reminder that like God can heal even the deepest of wounds, that he is so good. So this is my reminder of God's ability to heal my heart. Next, I brought a reminder of God's ability to bring me clarity when I was in that season of deciding where I was gonna go to school. Um, I ended up at Baylor University, sick and bears. This is my line jersey. But I have to tell you, I did not commit to Baylor University. I got rejected from my dream school, which at the time was USC. And then I committed to UCSD because I thought that was the best choice at the time for me. And the Lord just wrecked my plans. Last minute I was praying and I felt the most peace I'd ever felt, go to Baylor. Was it easy? No. Did it change my life? Absolutely. So when I look at this, I think of how God's plans are better than my own. But I had to wait on that. Next, when I got to school, you might be feeling this right now, like I was desperate for community. It's like I made this choice, I'm halfway across the country, thousands of miles away from home. Lord, would you deliver just a group of friends that love you? I was on the edge. I was like, either I'm gonna go on for Jesus or not. And the Lord answered my prayer in abundance. And my senior year of college, this mug has two pictures. On the front, there's three, three women I met my freshman year. That's us, like our first homecoming parade. And on the back is us at our last Baylor game together. These women stood by me through some of my toughest times. We're still friends to this day. They're bridesmaids at my wedding this year. But when I get to seasons where I'm lonely, where I'm questioning, God, can you bring community into my life that love you, that walk alongside you? I look at this mug and I'm encouraged. Next, this is kind of perfect. I was gonna talk about my dad, um, but he's actually with us this afternoon. You give a little wave, dad, say hey, hey. Um, I just remember for years, I'm, gonna cry, I'm not gonna cry. I, I prayed that my dad would um, begin to love Jesus again. He had been raised in the Catholic church and you know, after just some bad instances was a little, became a little jaded and um, just not really down, had a lot of questions around scripture. And I remember being away at school 
and just so concerned. I was like, if I'm not there, like how am I gonna share the truth of who Jesus is with my dad? And it was my junior and I just remember getting a call from him and he was like, hey Sarah, I just want you to know, I went on the men's house trip this weekend and I got baptized. And that was like nothing that I really had to do with aside from the power of prayer. And I'm so thankful and he actually serves with me at our welcome ministry, so catch him at the welcome tent outside. I had a little picture of him on my phone, but this is better because he's in person here. And then the last two things. After I graduated, I graduated, I was a, a communications and film major. Like I wanted to write scripts, I wanted to come home. Um, ended up working for a magazine after I graduated. I never thought I'd be a pastor. Like never, like people spoke that over me and I was like, you're tripping, like that's not real. But in 2021, um, I actually graduated from seminary, something I never thought I'd do. So when I look at this, I see less of like, oh, I did that and more of like, God, you had a plan for my life that I wouldn't have believed when I was in high school, that I wouldn't have believed when I was in college. And you brought me through this and you could do it again. And then finally, he's also here right now, um, but I, I was 29 when I got married this past summer, and there were seasons, y'all, where I was like, either the Lord is gonna come back before I die and I'm not getting married, or I'm just gonna have to be content in the Lord the rest of my life. Like, I just like, I had my heart broken, I was not sure if I'd ever get married. And then God's perfect timing, not in my timing, I was impatient, I didn't wanna wait. Um, he allowed me to meet and marry my husband, Tim, who's in the back. If you cannot see that beautiful man, he's right here in this picture. <laughs> but why do I share this all with you? Like these things, I do like, it's so easy to worship something when God like provides a good gift, right? But like, again, these things are not things that I worship, but things I look to when I lose heart not only as reminders of what God can do, but who my God is in my life. That he is a patient provider, guys. He is your patient provider. And these artifacts represent the literal facts of God's hand in my life. So if you're sitting here and you're waiting on something, it just feels like it's consuming you, might I encourage you, look back, start making a catalog, whether it's written, whether it's physical, of God's faithfulness in your life. If you're looking at me and you're like, Sarah, I haven't even stopped to notice, or I'm still figuring out who Jesus is, the invitation is begin now. Ask the Lord, would you write a history of your faithfulness in my life with me that I can look back on? Because I'll be honest with you, God has done all these amazing things in my life, but when I come up to a new season of waiting, there's still tension. It can still be difficult. Someone just asked me, they're like, you're preaching on waiting. You must be really good by now. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, but I've learned these tools and how to redirect my vision and focus back to the Lord so that I can wait again, that I can know the glory of God again in a new way because there's still things I'm waiting on. I'm gonna get real, I'm waiting on my sister to come back to Jesus. I love her so much. I cannot picture eternity without her and I have to wait. I have to see what the Lord's gonna do with that. I'm waiting on restoration in my extended family. I want there to be harmony, I want there to be unity, but we're not there right now. And the one I talked about with my husband just this week, and I don't know if this is how you're feeling, but I'm waiting to be free of chronic anxiety and depression. Like what, I'm talking about anxiety, like God is good, right? I believe that God can heal me completely, 
but he hasn't so far. So I'm waiting in faith. Believing the Lord has both given us wonderful resources through modern medicine, can I get a shout out, and therapy, and at the same time holding that tension that God's heart for me and for you is to receive more freedom and healing with time as we trust him. It's so important to hold the tension of God's history of our faithfulness when we face new areas of waiting. Because again, what happens as people, we are so forgetful, just read the Old Testament, we are so forgetful. And once we face a new area and we're not reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness, what happens, we forget and we can starve our faith to feed our fears. You can't feed both at the same time, truly. Like we put our energy to one thing or the other, but we can starve our faith to feed our fears and that's when we grow anxious in the absence of answers. Until our world that is so vast and beautiful begins to shrink to the size of our doubt and our anxiety. Where our waiting can start to feel suffocating, it feel like a cage. And the danger of that is we become so self-consumed and we focus on our own so circumstances so closely, we simply stop looking up to God and out to other people. You felt that way? That's where I get real fast. But what can we do? We can act in the opposite spirit to stop the shrinking of world to the size of our anxiety and doubt by not only reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness in our story, but reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness in other stories and other stories, cultivating a hunger to read, to hear, to ask a friend, can you tell me what God is doing in your life right now? Can you remind me that the same God that cares for you cares for my story? And in the details of waiting, be encouraged because we are actually listening, our eyes and ears are open to what God is doing in and through our communities. So again, this morning, we're gonna do just that by continuing on in the story that Luke has to tell us the source of some of the richest testimonies ever written and hearing two very different responses in a season of waiting. So let's continue. Luke goes on with his first account after he set up this eyewitness credibility. He says in verse five, in this time of Herod, king of Judea, there is a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. <laughs> Straightforward. So here's the setup of, the, of these characters we're looking at today. We have this couple who's literally come from a lineage of priests, righteous people. Not only that, but like they themselves are righteous. They're carrying that on, they're moral, they're excellent. AK, they've done everything right. They've done everything right. And yet, this like very common milestone in the life of a couple, having a child hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. And they were old. Like, you might not be there where you can imagine how that felt, but like, have you ever felt like your time has slipped away in something? Where you're like, there's literally no time for something to happen now. Like, it's gone, my opportunity has passed. This is a little bit of what they might have been feeling, and for Elizabeth especially, this would have brought a lot of shame, because in the ancient Near East at this time, as a woman, bearing and raising children was like the majority of your identity, passing on your family line. And without children, her life 
Not only that, it would have felt so disconnected from her peers, like so disconnected. All these other women she had grown up with having babies, raising children, but not her. And I feel like we could feel this in small ways, right? Like here, I'll put this one out there. Um, you're the only single person in your group of friends that's dating. Suddenly you're like, whoa, I can't, I can't relate to you in all those ways anymore. Not only that, but like that's a desire in my heart and that, that hurts a little bit. Or you're the only one not taking APs. So like it's hard to study with your friends and do homework. It's hard to relate to your friends. There's all these areas of your life where suddenly you feel socially disconnected because someone else has something that you don't have or they're in a position that you're not in. But I'm curious if like Zechariah and Elizabeth, this idea resonates with any of you. Like, do you, do you guys ever feel like you've done all the right things and still not getting the result you want? Like, have you felt that way before? Like, you're an exceptional student, but you're looking and you're talking to your college counselor and you're like, I don't know, your dream school looks like it's still a little bit out of reach. You've spent hours studying for finals, but the math is just not mathing. You're a stand-up guy, but she doesn't seem to see you as more than a friend. Like, why, why do the girls always go for the bad guys, you know? Or you felt like you gave your first relationship a good go, but things like just didn't work out. And you're sitting there, you're like, what did I do wrong? Why didn't I get the result that I wanted to? Like, just fill in the blank with your experience, because we all have them big and small, and you're not alone. We see the same pattern in Zechariah's life. It says this, verse eight, once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by a lot, I mean, they like drew a lot, draw straws, and according to the custom of the priesthood, he got to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And it, when it was time for the burning of incense, and that came, all the assembled worshipers were outside praying. So Zechariah's getting like thrown into the temple by himself. But here's the deal, here's the significance of this. If you're questioning like, okay, is Zechariah like actually a good guy, like the Lord didn't give him a baby. We're just gonna put, put this picture of a, a temple up on the screen. It's a little bit small, but if you could see at the top, that's the most holy place. And that is where they believe the presence of God dwelt. So this is, this is in a time where like Christ had not come yet. So the incarnational idea of God in man and flesh and the Holy Spirit, they believe that the Lord and his presence would dwell in different places. So this is the Holy of Holies. And here's the deal about this. You cannot enter this temple unless you were clean, unless you had repented for your sin, unless you had given a blood offering of an animal. Sorry, I know some of you guys don't like blood. But that's like how extreme those measures had to be taken. So if Zechariah was gonna go in there and not die, he had to have his hands clean. So he's in there and he's burning incense right outside the Holy of Holies. He's alone, he's doing his job. And here's what happens, verse 11. He's lighting the incense. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right hand side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Yeah. But the angel said to him, naturally, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been heard for years. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. Like, what? Let's be honest. Like, we'd all probably be a little shell-shocked too if an angel of the Lord appeared to you. 
But then hear what he's saying. The Lord has heard you. Like, be comforted. He's like, not only has God heard you, but he's gonna come through with the thing that you've been praying for. And then he continues. He's like, that's not the end of the good news, Zechariah. Listen, verse 14. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. That's a big deal. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go out before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents back to their children and the disobedient to wisdom and and of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So now the angel is doing oracle and prophesying. He's declaring what is to come about his son. This is amazing. Like not only are you gonna have a son, but he's gonna be a powerhouse for the kingdom of God. He's gonna make ready and prepare people for the Lord. And if you're new with the story of Jesus, I'm just gonna fill you in a little bit. John is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist. He's gonna go before Jesus and declare his coming. He's gonna get people ready to receive Jesus. And John is Jesus's cousin. So this news not only has implications for Zechariah and Elizabeth, this is good news for the whole world. They're like the Messiah that you've been waiting on. He's coming, and guess what? Like your son is gonna be a critical part of that. And hearing all this, this is Zechariah's response. All of this, he goes, he asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife, well, she's also along in years. It was a very gentle way of calling his wife old. But okay, let's be honest. Like, this is a reasonable response for him to be like, okay, what are the mechanics of this? Because we've been trying for years and this hasn't happened. It's an earthly response. But here's the trouble. Zachariah is speaking from a limited perspective. Where even in the face of a literal angel of God, like Gabriel, like he's like head honcho angel, his face still has shrunk to the size of his limitations. What he, Zechariah, is able to do or not do for himself has become his whole world. A messenger of God saying, this will be done, and Zechariah is like, are you sure? Are you sure, angel of the Lord? Because Zechariah had become more reliant on his inability than God's ability. Like, I'm a perfectionist, I'm a two-wing one, I like to do things for people and myself, So this is hard. This is hard for me too. Like I do not blame Zechariah in many ways for responding the way he did. Because we can get stuck in these patterns of thought, right? Like maybe this is you, just try these on. No relationship has worked out in the past. So what? I guess I'll be alone forever. Or school's always been hard for me. I'll never be able to succeed. Or my family has never been interested in church. So they'll probably never come. It's not that these realities aren't difficult to face, they are. And we don't serve a God that's a genie where we're like, come on God, come through on this right now. He's not always there just to change our circumstance at the snap of fingers, but I argue that if your immediate response like Zechariah is doubt or disbelief, then maybe you've spent too much time, like I have in the past, starving your faith by feeding your fear. And here's what I've spent much of my life learning and relearning, is that feeding our doubt and fear is an attempt at controlling the outcome. 
Like it's a natural response. It's something that we do when we want it to work out in our favor. And like doubt can be beautiful, right? It could be a tool that leads us deeper into the truth. But like I mentioned earlier, when we don't actually wrestle with our doubts, wrestle with our anxieties, bring them in light of the truth of God, bring them in light of the truth of wise counsel, a small group leader, a friend, we can end up trading our faith for grabbing the reins of our own life. Saying, okay, I'm in charge now. And then what do we do? We start making excuses for what we want to believe because we've been grown tired of wrestling and waiting. So if that's you, here's what I want. Here's what I also know to be true. If fear is rooted in doubt and anxiety, then faith is rooted in confidence. In confidence, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance of what we do not see. But like, how can we have assurance in what we do not see? Because it no longer depends on us at the end of the day. It completely depends on God his history, the truth of who he is, his character, which is actually the angel's next point. Gabriel goes on in verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, where he's like, listen, I've heard firsthand, like this is the most credible eyewitness I can give you that this is gonna come to pass. He says, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Gabriel isn't speaking on his own authority, but the Lord's on the Lord's, but again, he didn't believe him. And because of Zachariah's lack of faith, there are consequences, there are consequences. Verse 20, it says, and now you will be silent and you will not be able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which come, will come true at their appointed time. So I have a piece of bad news and good news. Bad news, there's a consequence for unbelief. Good news is that by the grace of God, that consequence, it does not always mean that the promise is not gonna come true. Like we truly in our fullness can never uphold our part of the deal, but God has never not made good on a promise. The word of the Lord does not return void. Isaiah 55, 11, he says this about the word of God. God saying this about his own word. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is the ultimate promise keeper, even when we, as we often do, fail, even in our unbelief. But with that, the harm of unbelief is that it can compromise our waiting. It doesn't always compromise the promise, but it can compromise our waiting, which for Zechariah was the shutting of his mouth. For us, it can look like the harm of forcing a relationship we know isn't good for us. I don't wanna wait anymore. I just wanna be with someone. I'm tired of being alone. Or just in a more general sense, like doing whatever it takes to get that grade, to look good on that college app. I don't know if I trust God with the outcome, so I'm just gonna try to make my way. But God's story for our lives and the promises that come with it are ultimately gonna come to pass because he upholds his end of the deal. So my warning to us, like truly to you guys, that it's better to wait on God in trust and obedience than try to get the outcome our way. Believe me, if anything, learn from my own mistakes. I've suffered in my waiting because I have tried to push the timeline and my circumstances beyond the Lord's plan for my life. Speaking of waiting, Luke continues like this. It says, verse 21, meanwhile, 
the people are waiting for Zechariah. Like he's inside and all this like craziness is happening and his friends are kind of like outside like, where is Zechariah? Like the incense doesn't take this long usually. And he's wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. So when he came out, he couldn't, he couldn't even tell them what had happened, but they realized that he must have seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. So he's like, angel, scary, like promise, baby. And they're like, we don't, what are you saying? It quickly became clear to his companions that something had gone down and they could only speculate. Like he lost the privilege of even telling, sharing. So what can he do? He goes home and he's unable to communicate with his wife the most important news he's ever heard. Dang it, right? But look what happens, look what happens, look what the Lord does in and through Elizabeth. In verse 23, it says, when his time of service had completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and then for five months remained in seclusion. She said this, the Lord has done this for me. She finds out she's pregnant, her immediate response is, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Okay, so why does Elizabeth remain in seclusion? Well, like, truly, like, imagine your grandma getting pregnant. Like, it would probably draw some attention, right? Like, this miracle that she'd been waiting on, like, she had already been so shamed, so isolated. She stayed in seclusion until the right time. She had lived in disgrace all those years, and suddenly she was living in God's favor. I know now some of you are like, oh, I don't want to imagine my grandma being pregnant. I'm sorry. Um, but the main point here is she knew without Zechariah even telling her that this blessing was from the Lord. She immediately, like, she does the opposite of Zechariah. She responds immediately in faith. He has done this for me. He declares, not Zechariah has done this for me. Not my body has done this for me. But God has done this for me. This, my friends, is faith. When we could go right to the root and go, oh my gosh, this was totally out of my control. God must have come through for me. See, Elizabeth was able to see that God was in the result because she relied on him in the waiting. She relied on him in the waiting. She did not let her faith shrink to the size of her fear or doubt. This is not to say it was hard. Remember, she was rejected socially. She had to be around other women. She couldn't relate to their families, but her reaction to this promise being fulfilled, we see the softness of her heart. And we also see that Elizabeth did not look at God's timeline as inferior to hers. Oof. Like, have you ever had that thought of like, God doesn't know what he's doing? It's like hard to say out loud, or maybe like a sister thought of like, if I were God, this would have happened already. But do you guys know what happens just one month after this? So she's five months pregnant. What happens one month after this? Mary the mother of Jesus comes to visit Elizabeth because she's her cousin. And when Mary enters the room, John and Elizabeth's belly leaps for joy because this plan of God, of really an immaculate conception through Mary with the savior of the world, Jesus, and then John the Baptist, like these babies meet. And I'm sure it was just that moment for Elizabeth being like, this is so much bigger than me. And Mary, who's probably scared, fearful, remember she's pregnant, like, not from Joseph, but by a miracle, is going to find comfort to seek time with her cousin. And this was all just the beginning of a filled promise to the world, not just to Mary, not just to Joseph, not just Zechariah and Elizabeth, but two miracles that would bring hope that have changed my life 
and have changed many of yours. So in your waiting, not only remind yourself of faithfulness, of God's faithfulness in your story, don't just remind yourself of God's faithfulness in other stories, but consider how God's timing in your life is meant to impact more than just you. It's meant to impact more than just you. The waiting may be because God wants to time out your story for your good and the good of others, for his glory, but it's gonna affect others as well. I'll just give a little synopsis because I know we're coming up on time, but basically, when I graduated from college, I wanted to move to Portland, Oregon. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world, I still do. And I wanted to be there, I wanted to take a job in creative writing, and I was stoked. I called my parents, I had a job interview, and after a conversation with my mom and dad, they basically were like, I don't know if that's possible. Some things have happened in our family and we need you to come home. Guys, I was devastated. I was devastated. I was gonna spread my wings. I'd gone to Texas. I don't, who wants to move back home? But I did it. I moved back home and what happened? I started working in a magazine and then I was like, oh, I don't wanna go back to Calvary. That's where I went to high school. High school ministry is very different, I'm gonna say right now. Also, I was not fully there with the Lord, but I was like, I do not wanna go back to Calvary. Long story short, I came back, started volunteering, and God had other plans. He, along with Jacob Wood, along with Mike McDowell, put it in our hearts to start Calvary Young Adults. And because of that today, because of my plans being dashed to the floor, I've seen God bless so many people, not because of me, but because of the ministry, through something that initially I didn't even wanna be a part of. But God had so many other people in mind, and I'm thankful that I do not live in Portland, Oregon right now. So the invitation is to, like Elizabeth, like my story, to keep faithful and soft-hearted towards God. Because Elizabeth shows us that waiting is not passive. Waiting is not passive. Passivity can lead to hardness of heart. We're like, okay, I'm waiting, but I'm giving up. I don't want to spend time with God because I'm upset with him. What can happen to our hearts? Like, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward, right? Like, our hearts can start to become hard. And having a soft and trusting heart towards God takes cultivation. Because what do we remember from the beginning of the story? It says they were both righteous. Like, they were both solid in the eyes of God. But they had such different responses. Why? Because Elizabeth had kept her heart soft towards God. She's a woman that still believed in the truth of God's character, even though she didn't see the results she wanted in her time. What do we learn from them? We learn that hope in our waiting, first of all, it does not come from faithful obedience alone. Zechariah was faithful, he was obedient, he was the guy. They're like, you can go near the Holy of Holies, you're good. But what does that mean for us? Living for God but not waiting on him is not gonna lead to the hope that we need in our waiting. Living for God, doing all the right things but not really waiting, trusting on his heart for us, his timing for us. Because Zechariah couldn't make Elizabeth pregnant. Ultimately, her having a child and having her honor restored couldn't have been dependent on him alone. Her situation is impossible, hopeless, apart from a miraculous intervention, which is what we see. But at the same time, what do we learn from their story? Hope and our waiting does not come from divine intervention alone, aka waiting on God but not living for him. We're like, okay, God's gonna move, so I don't really need to do anything. Like, I, yeah, I have such faith in God, but I don't really need, like, spend time with him or like, you know, like follow his commandments because he's got me, like he loves me. That's grace without truth, right? Waiting on God to move and not honoring him with our hearts and our hands and our minds 
ultimately still leads us away from hope. It's both living for God and waiting on him that gives us hope. I just want to ask you guys, like, what is your waiting dependent on? Like right now, in this moment, there's no judgment, just in your own hearts. What is your view of waiting dependent on? Is it your own strength, what you're able to do? Is it on your own self-worth, like how you see yourself? Is it your own obedience, like, well, I've done everything right? Or when you think about the thing you're waiting on, do you think about the character of God? The promise that no matter what comes, whether it's the specific outcome you want, that Christ came for you. Like in that, like his comfort came for you. And Christ, not only that, in your waiting, he is for you. And he is with you in that waiting. Do you know what comforts me when I think of things that I'm still waiting on? Like the relationships I want to see healed, the mental relief that I so desire, the family members I still long to see Jesus. It's to consider that this all matters to Jesus in the midst of our waiting. And I feel like we'd be missing out if we didn't celebrate one of these final truths. And it's in our waiting, I want us to consider that our ultimate wait is over. Our ultimate wait is over. Romans 8, 35 through 9, he, like this is when Paul is like speaking to the people of God who are literally facing life or death. And this is the good news, the encouragement in their waiting where they're like, is Christ, like, are we gonna be delivered from this or not? He says, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers. He's just covering all the bases, right? Neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Nothing can separate you guys. No matter how hard the waiting feels, no matter how hard the waiting feels, and my final point here is, I want you guys to consider that as we have received our ultimate prize. Like this is what the people of God have been waiting for again and again. That God is actually patient with us. That the God of the universe is patient with us because he wants you to have access to him. He wants everyone to have access to him in their waiting, in their hoping, and their longing for freedom. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Like when you're like, man, God is so slow. It says, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let me just sum this up. Guys, like, he is for you. God is for you. He loves you. He loves you so much. He wants you to know him in your waiting, in your doubt, in your confusion. He wants the world to know him. And that's the ultimate prize. He wants to use your circumstances to show you his glory so that others may see his glory and come to know him as a good father. And this is just like, as I was preparing the message, like this is where I kept landing, I kept landing. I'm like, okay, God, I don't even know if this is gonna tie in, but I just feel like the Lord wants you to know like in God's hands, your waiting is safe. Like whatever, you, like you're safe. Your future is safe, your waiting is safe. 
So I'm gonna leave you with this encouraging prayer before we head back into a time of worship. This is what I hope for you guys by next Christmas. Ready? May the history of God's faithfulness. Actually, would you guys just like open your hands, just like a little like receiving? Like, I just wanna speak this over you. Our words carry so much power. May the history of God's faithfulness encourage you and those around you in the midst of waiting. May God's ability in your waiting encourage you more than your inability. May the thought of the impact of his timing on others strengthen you. May his patience with us comfort you. May you wait well this year knowing that your waiting is safe with him. And finally, may you wait well knowing that your ultimate wait is over, that Jesus is yours and you are his. Amen. Let's worship. We hope that was a blessing to you. You can connect with us on social media at Calvary HSM 805 on Instagram or on our website. God bless you.